Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You think you know London? Well, guess again. There are so many incredible gems and hidden histories just waiting to be discovered. In this jam-packed series, we'll take you to every corner of the superb international city that is London. Visiting secret local haunts, meeting the people behind them, and unpacking the history of London through their eyes. Hop in and take a ride with us in the London Black Cab and see this fantastic city in the fast lane. Today I'm heading to the east of London to visit London Docklands and the surrounding area. London Docklands is the part of London by the Thames Riverfront, which was, at one time, the world's largest port. No longer used as a port, the area was extensively redeveloped from the 1970s onwards and is now a thriving and cutting-edge hub of London commerce. Our first stop is the Isle of Dogs, and I'm meeting with historian David Charnick to find out more about the area's fascinating nautical past. Well, welcome to the Isle of Dogs. Why is it called the Isle of Dogs? Where did the name come from? <laughs> well, the short answer is nobody knows. Um, some people go with the literal answer that there were hunting dogs kenneled here, royal hunting dogs. Uh, some say Henry VIII, which puts us in the early 1500s. Some say Edward III in the 1300s. Doesn't seem likely to me. There was no hunting round here. It's more likely the corruption of some other word. The one I favour is Isle of Dykes, because in the medieval period, the Isle of Dogs was flooded twice a day because it was on the floodplain of the River Thames. And so Dutch engineers were brought over to build defences against the river. And obviously they were used to building dikes in the Netherlands because it's so low-lying. And so it's possibly a corruption of dikes. It was certainly being called Isle of Dogs by the 1540s because it's recorded as that in shipping records. Now, the area has, again, dramatically changed, like lots of places in London. Mm -hmm. um, can you just tell me a little bit the history of the place? The Isle of Dogs really was pasture land, oh, right. and uh, prominent butchers of the city would own plots of land and they would graze their cattle here. And that was going on really until the 1850s, before the Millwall Dock was built. Even after the West India Docks at the top of the island were built, there was still a lot of uh, agrarian economy on the island itself. 
how did it become industrialised? What was the key factor? Well, the key factor was the docks. You had Black Wall, which is at the uh, downriver side of yep. the island. That's where the basic embarkation points were. So there were shipyards there where two of Henry VIII's warships were repaired. Uh, Frobisher, who set out to find the Northwest Passage across the, the top of Canada, so you didn't have to go around Cape yeah. Fear to get the Pacific. He left from Black Wall. Further upriver around Limehouse, Ratcliffe, Wapping, that's where the shipyards were for repair. There was such congestion in the river in the 18th century that docks were needed in order to accommodate shipping. Um, because cargoes would be sitting for about a month or so, and obviously you've got your investment tied up, but also it was uh, prone to pilfering. So that's why you needed the docks. And the, the story of the docks starts just at the north end of the island with West India docks. So the West India docks opened in 1802, and then the East India docks at Blackwall in 1806, so they're quite early on. Then the Millwall dock comes in in 1868. So you've got more and more workers there, and so they need to be accommodated. So increasingly, streets are being laid out for the dock workers, and indeed, shipped captains, people like that. So David, on my travels here in the taxi, mm -hmm. um, I noticed a lot of the streets have exotic names. Cuba Street, for example. Does that have any relevance to what would have been going on there? The authentic streets do. They refer sometimes to the uh, particular companies that dealt with certain countries, and so they would accommodate their ship's captains in terraces of houses there. Or alternatively, it may be to do with the particular areas of the docks where certain cargoes are brought ashore. But there are also less authentic streets with uh, nautical names that owe their existence to the uh, development of the area in the 80s. Right, so Marsmaker Road and Spindrift Avenue and all these, they're sort of new. Absolutely, they're far from kosher. The Docklands Light Railways had a profound effect on the area, enables people to get out here. Well, the Docklands Light Railway, the DLR, which came into being in 1987, was um, the salvation of the area, really, because it wasn't really served by anything except a couple of bus routes. And if you're building an enterprise zone and you're trying to attract big business, you don't want them getting the bus. No. And so uh, a computerised light railway uh, was the answer. And it has extended significantly. It goes right out across the Lee to Beckton and places like that and the Excel Centre around the Royal Docks. Oh, yeah. And nowadays goes under the river to Greenwich because originally it actually terminated at Island Gardens at the bottom of the island and you had to walk through the foot tunnel. Ah, let's talk about the foot tunnel. I've never actually walked through it. Well, Greenwich foot tunnel uh, was there to replace the old ferry. Right. If you go down to Island Gardens Station, nearby there's a pub that commemorates the old ferry yeah. that used to go across. Primarily a horse ferry to transfer people's horses across, uh, but also used by pedestrians. But you need a more permanent crossing, and the foot tunnel provided that. So, one of the ways that people obviously get out here is at the back of my taxi, mm -hmm. but another pleasurable way to come out is on the river taxi. Oh yes. The river taxis essentially are taking us back in time because the Thames was the main transport artery before the 20th century. And <clears throat> as I understand it, the first proper commuting done by river was when the Daily Telegraph newspaper moved from Fleet Street to Docklands. Okay. And they established a river taxi for their uh, employees to come from Fleet Street out to Docklands and back again. But uh, it's become an increasingly popular way to uh, move from the island uh, into the city and back again. In fact, your reach goes all the way from Richmond upriver in Surrey, all the way down to Greenwich. The services are fairly frequent and quite inexpensive, and you're waiting by the river, which is an attractive place to wait anyway. And there's no traffic jams yet on the river? Uh, not just yet, no, no, not like there were in the 18th century. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
The Jeffrey Museum is a beautiful 18th century almshouse and a much-loved oasis in the heart of the East End. Welcome to the Jeffrey Museum in East London. My name's Hannah Fleming um, and I'm one of the curators here. Before the museum existed, these buildings functioned as working almshouses for 200 years and they were founded by a man called Robert Jeffrey, who was a big figure in the City of London and he'd been master of the Company of Ironmongers, one of the city livery companies. At the beginning of the 20th century, the London County Council stepped in, bought the site, preserved the buildings and opened the gardens to the public in 1912. Where did the inspiration come from for the museum? Yeah. Um, as we walk around, I mean, it's fascinating. There was a plan for it to be a furniture museum to reflect the local trade, which was the furniture trade, which had grown up around here. At the same time that the London County Council was opening this museum, it was also actually demolishing quite a lot of other properties. And so they were ending up with a lot of architectural salvage from houses, things like stairways, doors, door knockers, balconies that they didn't know what to do with. So a lot of that material came to the Jeffrey. And by the time the museum opened, its displays were always much broader than just furniture. So can you tell me something about the layout, how we walk from room to room, yeah. you know, the areas yeah. that we're going through? So what's really nice, I think, about the museum is we have a very straightforward chronology. So we start off with our first room in 1630, and it's a merchant's hall in a London townhouse. You'll walk through the 17th, 18th, 19th and 20th centuries and end up in the 1990s in a converted warehouse apartment in Shoreditch. Each room represents the main living space in the home of a middling or middle-class Londoner. Right. And then in the 1990s, the museum had a new extension built, which hooks onto the corner of the almshouses. And as we walk into that section of the museum, then you'll come to the 20th century rooms. So the final room, the 1990s um, converted warehouse, there were a lot of industrial warehouses mm. that were falling into disuse. So hence why they became residential apartments. What can you tell me about the room we're currently standing in? So we're standing in a 1745 parlour. We're in the middle of the 18th century in a London townhouse. Nothing post-dates 1745. Everything is an original object from that time. And the parlour would have been the room where you could have some meals. You might have dined in here, but also where you would have socialised, where your friends and acquaintances right, would have come yeah. and you could have drunk tea. So the middling sorts at this point are quite focused on the idea of politeness. It's a sort of code of behaviour that governs everything that you do. Your behaviour, your sort of deportment, your conversation, and also how you actually furnish your room. Um, things aren't supposed to be too gaudy, too elaborate. There's supposed to be a sort of element of restraint. One interesting story is with the um, porcelain tea bowls and saucers. Those particular tea bowls and saucers were part of a huge cargo um, of porcelain put onto a Chinese junk that was sailing to Europe and it sunk off the coast of Vietnam in a place called Car Mau in about 1725 and lay undisturbed for hundreds of years and then the wreck was found by some Vietnamese fishermen, I think, um, and brought up to the surface and auctioned off in the 1990s you'll find lots and lots of that porcelain in museums all over the world. Oh, what a fantastic yeah. story, isn't and what's, it? What's really nice is that for the middling sorts, sort of people the museum yeah. was interested in, they would have had lots and lots of bits of porcelain like that. As I walked along the corridor, I noticed the chapel. The chapel was part of the original almshouse buildings. That would have been quite common for almshouses to um, have had a chapel. And the pensioners that lived here were obliged to attend service every Sunday or they could be fined. It's got a monument to Robert Jeffrey, the almshouse's founder in there. When he died, he was buried in his local church, um, St Dionys on Lime Street, which was a Wren church. But then when that was demolished in the 19th century, the monument to him was moved and came here, and 
his body and that of his wife, who were also moved and they're now buried um, in a small graveyard in the gardens here. One of the things I found as I walked around and looked at the dates, you explain what happened in that era. The idea is that you're getting to see these rooms in context. So as you walk past the rooms, you can see, you know, what's changing in terms of interior decoration and furniture history. But really, it's also about social history and people's lives and what's going on in the world around them and how that affects how they live at home. And that's the story we're interested in. Up until probably the middle of the 20th century, most of the objects you'll see on display in the museum have been purchased. From the mid-20th century onwards, then we rely very heavily on donations okay. um, because we're particularly interested in the personal stories behind objects, who bought them, how they felt about them, how they were used in their home, what their home was like, all those stories. That's what we really want to get from people to understand how people lived at home. It's not the past, but the future that you're interested in. How about a visit to the IMT Gallery? My name's Mark Jackson. I'm the curator here at IMT Gallery in Bethnal Green. IMT Gallery started back in 2005 by a group of uh, curators and gallerists. And we were interested in putting together a space that put on the kinds of exhibitions that we weren't seeing in other spaces in London. And we were particularly interested in supporting artists who worked um, straight out of their degrees, as well as artists who are more well-known, more established figures. One of the things we like to do in terms of the kinds of work we're showing is demonstrate the exciting breadth of practices that artists have. So we usually have about six exhibitions a year, sometimes a few more, sometimes a few less, depending on what we're doing. And alongside that, we also have a programme of talks, of performance artworks. So it's quite a, it's quite a varied, quite an eclectic uh, programme at the gallery. This exhibition that we've got on the moment is uh, by David Burroughs called What the Frog's Eyes No Longer Tell the Frog's Brain. And these works are a combination of tactile collage techniques, uh, cut out paper, cut out cardboard, uh, hand painted objects, at the same time as being very much a kind of post-internet phenomenon. There's texts and images that you'll be familiar with perhaps from spam emails on the World Wide Web. And Burroughs is really interested in the way that uh, image making and image presentation has changed since the internet. The idea that traditional art would have one very expensive painting accessible to a rich patron, for example, whereas images now become more powerful, become more accessible, the smaller, the low, lower in detail they are because they can fly over the internet and how that might change our understanding of art. What makes us different from a lot of other galleries is that we can take more risks with artists that we think are interesting, uh, with the kinds of projects that might, uh, might not happen at other spaces. And uh, so the kind of things you're coming to see when you come and see at IMT Gallery, the majority of them won't happen anywhere else. It'll be quite a unique experience for that. Sometimes the exhibitions we show are quite challenging, intellectually speaking, but uh, hopefully they're also presented in a way that makes them accessible and exciting. Because we're a gallery that shows a lot of new media, video work, for example, or net art, uh, we like to uh, engage with technology in, a, in terms of how we reach our audiences and also how we, how we present the shows, how we extend the shows beyond the bricks and mortar of the gallery here in Bethnal Green. So we're, we're quite an early adopter of uh, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook to reach new audiences and also to get people excited about the gallery who might not have even visited the space. Over the last few decades, the East End of London has become particularly well known for being uh, a space for art galleries. 
Artists started to find interesting studio spaces here, old warehouse spaces, things like that. And then the galleries started moving in to represent their work. And so you have, like, within a stone's throw, a number of different gallery spaces, different types of gallery spaces. And just down the road, obviously, the V&A Museum of Childhood, uh, the Whitechapel Gallery that operates a, a bus tour that frequently comes to visit us in the exhibitions we do. So it's a very kind of, I suppose, it's a very lively part of London in terms of exhibitions. Some of the exhibitions we've done in the past, uh, Malaysian artist Yak Bose Chong Boom Pok turned the gallery into a Malaysian-style cafe. Or we had uh, the Polish composer Merek Kolonievski transformed the gallery into a gigantic light sensor so that when people moved through the space it created sounds and images. And one of the things that we've really tried to concentrate on is that this is a unique experience. It's a challenging experience perhaps to some arts visitors, but hopefully a unique and exciting one. Something where you leave the gallery knowing that your uh, interest in contemporary art has broadened, that the ideas presented have perhaps been challenged you in some way, but mainly that it can be an accessible and exciting experience for all who visit the gallery. Welcome to the Royal Docks. This area has seen a dramatic transformation over the last decade. I'm meeting with Mike Luddy to discuss the heritage and history of the area. Mike, good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name's Derek O'Reilly, I'm a London taxi driver. Could you tell me where we are? We're in the Royal Docks. I'm the managing director of the company who look after the Royal Docks. If you've been standing here 30, 40 years ago, you'd be looking at a dock full of ships. And this is what the Royal Docks were created for. They were created at a time when the other docks in London had become too small for the big, large, ironclad steamships. If you think this was all marshland before it was built, and without heavy machinery, they built these docks that are 13 metres deep. Can you imagine digging 13 metres down into the marshland and creating these huge spaces for docks for ships? And I just think it's an incredible piece of Victorian engineering. And they were created in three parts. So the dock in front of us now, this is Royal Victoria Dock, and that was the first dock to be built around about 1870. And behind us, where the Crystal Building is, used to be a lock that connected Royal Victoria Dock to the river. Four kilometres from here to the far end of the docks is the main lock today. And what was added over time were Royal Albert Dock, King George V Dock and Pontoon Dock. So by about 1920, these docks were absolutely booming and the whole of the area was dependent on the docks for work. And they lived in unbelievably uh, deprived conditions. Um, so the docks boomed in the 1920s, but as large containerized shipping came along, even these docks were too small to take ships at large. In fact, those ships couldn't get this far down river. So gradually, the Royal Docks started to decline. And by 1982, the last cargo ship came into the Royal Docks and they were closed. This caused tremendous problems for people in the area. And the London Docklands Development Corporation was uh, created at that point. And their job was to try and help the area regenerate. And really what you see today is a result of those early plans that the London Docklands Development Corporation put together and, and plans that we've taken on with the Greater London Authority. We're quite keen not to lose that connection with the past. So we've been running a programme called Forgotten Stories. And the idea of that is that we realise that the generation that used to work here when this was a working docks are now very, very old. 
and we wanted to capture their stories about the Royal Docks so we didn't lose the history of this place. For example, what used to happen is all the ships would sound their horns on New Year's Eve and everyone would come out of their houses and wish each other um, Happy New Year. And we captured with a couple of people who were kids at the time of what it was like. And we found some sound footage of all the ships sounding their horns in the Royal Docks. It's incredible to hear all of the ships. Yeah. You suddenly realise how many ships would have been in here. One of uh, the guys I've got to know pretty well tells the story of what this place was like during the Second World War. And if you think they estimate 25,000 bombs were dropped on the docks of London during the Second World War. And he remembers as a little boy coming out of the house and hearing all the ACAC guns going and all, all the barriers of guns that were all positioned around the Royal Docks. And the Royal Docks took a tremendous hammering during the Second World War. But these people were so tough and they would just pick themselves up and get on with work that was so vitally important for the war effort, including, indeed, building the temporary harbours for the Normandy invasions when they happened right. were built right here in the Royal Docks. So what we've been able to do is capture an archive of lots of really fascinating stories of what it was like around here. We can look around today, it, it looks amazing, but, you know, the history is what this place is all about, and that's what we're... You know, really try to capture. The first thing that came here was an airport, believe it or not, and that's London City Airport, which is down in the yep. middle of the docks. We've got XL, which is the uh, big exhibition centre for London, and we've also got a university at the far end, University of East London. We're going to be doing all sorts of things here in the water to try and encourage people to use this place as a destination uh, for leisure. Mm -hmm. So we, we have a beach during the summer, we have all sorts of water sports going on. Even mad people tonight will be doing some open water swimming in that water in this sub-zero temperature. temperature. I know, <laughs> um, they've got to be nuts. But we have all sorts of things going on, wakeboarding. We've got a big regatta centre down the far end, so sailing and canoeing and rowing going on. I mean, it's already got some great things to offer. And what we're going to be doing with the new developments is giving people even more reason to come out to the docks. So the, the whole idea is try and bring life back to this place and get people to come here and appreciate it for what it is. Mike, thank you very much indeed. It's a pleasure. I don't often get journeys out to the docklands at the moment, but I'm hoping that that will improve and increase uh, with your future developments. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Next stop for me is The Gun, a public house in the heart of London's Docklands, which has a rich history and unrivaled riverside views. Morning, Derek. Welcome to The Gun Cold Harbour. Um, my name is Jean-Paul Turin. I'm the general manager of The Gun at Cold Harbour, which is a beautiful, great two-listed building. I haven't been in The Gun for over 20 years. I've noticed there's been some changes. Yeah, there's been quite a few changes, I think, since uh, you would have frequented the, the venue. The Docklands area used to be a working docks area. As you can see by the Dockers' cottages, those people have obviously moved out and there's a new worker that has now moved to the Docklands area. It's obviously become a lot more upmarket, um, a lot more popular, especially that Canary Wharf just on our doorstep. Walking around the pub, I noticed various dining areas. We have three private dining rooms, this being one of them, the river room. We also have the cabin room downstairs, which can seat up to 22 people. We also have the red room, which can seat again 22 people. So which bar are we in now? So we're seated in the, the gun room. As you can see, we have beautiful guns which adorn the walls over here. And it's also the room where we have a unique feature of the pub, which is the secret staircase, um, which is just here behind me, actually. So the secret staircase used to work its way up to the river room upstairs, which used to be sleeping quarters. But behind me as well were two spy holes just behind those two clocks. And uh, when servicemen or um, revenue men used to come into the pub and want to remove the contraband that was being sold through the pub, um, those who used to run the pub would obviously observe them coming through into this area, through those spy holes. So pirates would have actually traded within the pub of contraband? Yes, that's correct. Oh, what a great story. Where we're standing, just behind this boarded up area of years, where that secret staircase would come out. Oh, right, yeah. okay, so went from here down to where we were correct. earlier. Correct, down to the gun room, and this also then would give access to the river in which we are standing behind as well. The gun used to be frequented by Lord Horatio Nelson and his mistress, Lady Emma Hamilton. Um, they used to meet in this room. It used to be sleeping quarters uh, back in those days. And that the secret staircase is how they used to access the room uh, to avoid being seen by anybody that was in the pub. Um, it used to be Lord Horatio Nelson's local pub and he used to live in Cold Harbour Lane, 20 doors down. And the areas outside, I'm intrigued. The terrace that we have, which is um, quite unique, the roof and the windows can open up so you can be drinking and dining al fresco outside. Should it be cold, it's warm, we have heaters inside the terrace as well. It's fantastic drinking and dining alongside the Thames. So we have a beautiful event space um, adjacent to the gun that we've themed this year um, along the lines of a gin garden. So we have outdoor games, we have ping pong out there, we have giant connect force. We also sell 13 different types of gins through the bar outside. alongside the river with unspoiled views of the Thames and the O2. 
So this is the herb garden. Four years ago, my then head chef, uh, Quentin, him and I thought, well, you know, we've got this space that's just being used for nothing really. We thought, well, let's put some herbs into the garden. And every year we put new herbs in. We put um, some strawberries sometimes when it comes close to the season as well. So we use that, you know, cl closing in on June and July, especially for Wimbledon. So on a daily basis, when they create their dishes for the fresh fish specials, they come out and they'll pick some herbs in the garden. It's a great spot actually outside here where we are. It's also the busiest part of the river where we are located. And that docking area, you know, all the, all the naval boats, when they dock in Canary Wharf, they'll pass through this area. That blue bridge will sort of lift up. Makes, I think, the space quite unique out here. Yeah, it makes an exciting place to be, I yeah, should definitely. imagine. to the good hotel, which unusually is floating in the Royal Docks. My name is Alba. I'm the brand trainer and activator within Good Hotel London. This hotel was originally in Amsterdam. This platform was built not with the aim of being moved, but our CEO Martin is very driven. So together with a group of engineers, they found a way to move the platform. The most difficult part was at the end, uh, here in London, because the canal is very narrow. It was less than a meter left each side. We wait here until the city airport was closed. Due to safety reasons, we were not able uh, to be around while the airport is working. So then finally, at night, we moved the platform uh, to its final destination here in Royal Victoria Docks. East London is quite trendy nowadays. We are well connected with the city centre. There is an uh, underground just two minutes walk from the hotel. And then we have uh, different leisure options around, mainly it's, uh, the cable car, where you can go to O2. There are some exhibitions, concerts, and also you can take a boat and then you can go through the city centre by the Thames. Uh, also, we have the Excel Conference Centre, uh, and Siemens uh, conference centers. Good Hotel Group is focused on people, so we measure our success uh, based on the amount of people that we positively impact. These people can be guests, that they come here uh, just to enjoy their stay uh, with us, but also we run a training program. We collaborate together with the council here to recruit long-term unemployed people from the borough we help them to have a career within the hospitality sector. We try to uh, contract with local suppliers in terms of food, in terms of drink or external services. Um, we also uh, run a project to try to engage with our neighbours. So we create events, we have special rates for them, so local business can use our meeting rooms. In regards to our dining options, we have our living room. It's an open space. Our idea is uh, to make our guests feel at home, but also we try to encourage people to interact. This is why we have this uh, design. We have uh, different ambiences. Some areas is more like a proper living room with sofas and low tables. Other areas is more like a long table. Our food options, we offer tapas, it's small dishes that is aimed to be shared. So then also you can try many different kinds of food. We have a bar, 
and that it's also part of the living room. We try to have local drinks as part of our philosophy, but also we try to engage our employees to be part of our menu. Rob is our bartender and uh, he has some of its uh, cocktails, own cocktails in our menu. Uh, we have also Faye that uh, had created some uh, smoothies. We have uh, four different kinds of rooms. We have a street view, we have a river view, and then the lax room. Uh, the lax is facing also the river, but the bed is slightly bigger. And the window is on one side of the bed, so it's, it's very nice in the morning to wake up with those views. We have four new rooms, it's junior suite. So they are located in, on the corners, but facing the river, and they are bigger and it's good for families with kids, for example. So personally, I think that Good Hotel London is, uh, is unique. It's uh, floating in the Thames. It has a very different design and, and vibe. And also it's, uh, it's a business that is uh, supporting a social uh, goal. There is nothing else that is uh, in London. Now I'm at G. Kelly's Pie and Mash Shop to sample the famous dish with proprietor Neil Venning. Welcome to G. Kelly. We're in the heart of the East End in Bow, just off the Roman Road. As a London cab driver, oh, I am familiar with pie and mash shops all <laughs> over London. But could you just tell me the history of this dish? Pie and mash came to be in a shop around about the late 1800s when the street sellers of pies and street sellers of eels decided to join together and open up in shops and out-competed people in the street. So the pie is just British minced beef. All our beef actually comes from a farm down in Wiltshire. And the liquor was originally made to be served with stewed eels. Okay. So they'd make the stewed eels up and then they'd add a, a batter, which is just a flour and water, and then add parsley to it as like a light flavouring. So that's where it came from. Our liquor today doesn't contain any eels. It's, it's sort of evolved to be a, a match with the pie, but we still do sell the eels alongside. What's the correct drink to have with pie and mash? There's two schools of thought here, and really I think it depends what temperature it is outside. So if it's a cold day, you've got to have a good English cup of tea. Um, but if it's, you know, it's a bit warm, you have a, a small orange juice. <laughs> what do you always recommend should follow? So we always have apple crumbles, which is a really traditional English dish, either with custard or ice cream. I mean, I don't think there's a Londoner alive who's never experienced pie and mash <laughs> at some time. Um, is it as popular today as it's always been? Uh, so probably the, the peak of popularity was in the 70s, but we're finding it now in the last sort of five years, it's becoming more and more popular as people sort of get in touch with more basic foods and appreciate our food traditions of poor man's food. There's a lot of interest around it. I mean, I have pie and mash on a Friday, but I was just intrigued to see, do you have a day that's busier than the other days? So, always Saturdays have been the busiest, because uh, we've got the market, people have got time off in the day, and it's traditionally something you eat at lunchtime. Uh, but now we've got the uh, West Ham Football Stadium just down the road, so we're getting pretty busy on, a, on match days. This shop looks quite traditional to me. Can you tell me something <laughs> about the history of this particular shop? Yeah, so... This shop opened up in 1939, 
It was opened by a guy called George Kelly, who was my great uncle. Oh, right. uh, he didn't have any kids. He actually passed it along to my granddad. So I'm fourth generation pie and mash owner. <laughs> so for me, what, what I find quite interesting is the, how the, the decor has changed because we were very, very busy and we got a lot of damage in the blitz. Right. This one's constantly evolved. So underneath these tiles here are the original ones, which we're actually hopefully restoring. So oh, okay. We're putting back the original marble tables. Did you continue to trade during the war? Yeah, during the war, my grandfather actually managed to negotiate for a meat ration. So uh, the Ministry of Food would uh, drop off the ration for the week to be able to feed the the poor workforce of East London at that time, which was really suffering. Mm. So it really is traditionally, Stan, you've got West Ham football ground, pie and mash on the Saturday. I suppose you couldn't ask for much more, could you? Yeah, you don't get more East End than this. Tucked away on Mayor Street is the last Tuesday society. And my curiosity has got the better of me, so I'm off to find out what this is all about. Hello, Derek. My name is Victor Wind, and I'd like to welcome you to my Museum of Curiosities, Fine Art and Natural History. Well, Mr Wind, thank you for having me here today on this delightful mocktail. I wish it was something stronger, but obviously I'm driving. On my travels around the East End, I have been to some truly amazing places. But I've got to tell you, this takes the biscuit. It's absolutely incredible. What's the story behind it? Well, over 10 years ago, I opened this place as a, as a curiosity shop because I couldn't find a proper curiosity shop. It was a curiosity shop and, a, and an art gallery. People come, they come to a shop, they walk around, they leave. It, it, it wasn't particularly enjoyable. Whereas I wanted people to come and, and spend as much time as possible and to enjoy it more. I wanted to create a classic a cabinet of, of, of wonders. Everything that glistens and is marvellous and fills me with, with joy and happiness, I've, I've, I've put it in, in a cabinet. It is the story of, the, of the, in, the inside of my mind. How did you collect all of this stuff? It's it. Yeah, every child collects the seashells they find on the shore, the pebbles, the toy soldiers, and I'm afraid I've never grown out of the childish desire. Do you have any regular events that are held here? I mean, I do a, a guided tour twice a month. I do a, a, a storytelling evening. We have cocktail masterclasses. We have lectures. And once a month, we had a petting zoo with pythons and tarantulas and scorpions. And they come in and people get to get to know them and, and stroke them and, and pet them and, and feed them. Uh, we also have taxidermy classes. Taxidermy classes? Yes, I run the, the British Academy of Taxidermy, which is the largest taxidermy academy in Europe. And we have two or three classes a week. Everything from stuffing a mouse to stuffing a fox or a deer or a goat or a crab. And people can book to come to these courses? Yes, they sell out quickly. I can imagine. What I find fascinating is downstairs is the museum and upstairs where we are at the moment is a cocktail bar. Having a cocktail bar where people can come and drink the finest cocktails, I think it increases the enjoyment. And the same because upstairs in the cocktail bar we have the art gallery. But if you go to a, a museum or an art gallery, it, it, I think it's terribly dull. The idea is here you can come and you can sit down in a comfortable chair, you can have some good drinks, and you can really get to experience and, and spend time with pictures. 
the idea of the museum was a sort of place where all the, the odds and bods and the strays and the people who don't quite fit in can come here. We, we welcome those who are interested in the, the other side of, of life. Well, it's certainly a fascinating and riveting place. I'm almost lost for words at some of the exhibits that are here, and I will certainly be making a return journey. I'm in the East End of London. You wouldn't believe it. I'm in this calm, peaceful oasis that is Tower Hamlet Cemetery. An incredible place. My name's Kenneth Greenway, and I'm the manager here at Tower Hamlets Cemetery Park, and I work for the charity that care for the site. We're just behind Mile End Tube Station, literally a short five-minute walk. Now, standing here, you would never guess you were a five-minute walk from Mile End Tube Station. I mean, the environment here is fantastic. What can you tell me about the history of this cemetery? Historically, we're a closed cemetery. We're one of London's Magnificent Seven, so most people have heard of Highgate, Nunhead, Kensal Green, Brompton, West Norwood and Abney Park. We're the least well-known and often the last to be visited, but it makes us no less special. We were an active cemetery up until 1966, when we were closed by Act of Parliament and redeclared a public park. So that's how we defend the heritage here, through managing it as a woodland nature reserve. We're the only woodland in the borough and the most urban woodland in London, and so we're all about creating a little piece of the countryside in the city. Now, walking round the cemetery, um, I noticed the architecture of the various graves. The architecture reflects the fashions of the time. They reflect people keeping up with the Joneses, all wanting to be seen, seen to be modern and up-to-date. So a lot of the monuments will be kind of neoclassical or Gothic, and then as you move towards our closure, they become much more kind of traditional, just a regular kind of rounded top stone or squared. But they, they do reflect fashions. On entering the cemetery, I did notice an attractive memorial. That's probably our war memorial you're referring to there. So it's kind of a half circle shape. So that's owned and managed by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And it remembers those from this particular area of Tower Hamlets who fought and died in either the First or Second World War. It was relocated in that position in the mid-1990s. So the original monument stood not quite far from us here, but was made from a stone that weathered poorly. It suffered from vandalism. So the Commonwealth War Graves Commission took the monument away um, with a view never to have one here again, but we challenged that decision. And then in 1993, we had the plaques returned in a new monument. How important is the park as opposed to the cemetery? The cemetery and the park, one doesn't really exist without the other because this reflects the diversity of East London. There are people from all over the world buried here, but it reflects that the community of East London has always changed. So the way we get people in to see that is by managing it as a park, having this little piece of the countryside in the city where people can enjoy unrivaled opportunities to see plants and animals. So the park is what people need. It's good for mental and physical well-being. It, can, it helps people feel better about where they live. And while we're here now, it's birdsong yeah, that I'm having yeah. to raise my voice above. It's not traffic noise. I've swapped tower blocks for trees. And, you know, it's wildlife that are sharing their personal lives with me, not human beings. It's, it is an oasis of calm.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.